That was Lake, St- Lake Street Drive uh, with their song Shame, Shame, Shame. They're playing the Knitting Factory on August 7th. I really like those guys. That's some good, good music. All right, you are tuned in to The Big Tent here on Radio Boise 89.9 FM, radio, uh, Caldwell, Boise. I'm Jen Schneider. I'm your host of The Big Tent, and I have two guests here with me today. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, first is Randy Megan. He's the director and professor at the School of Social Work at Boise State. And I have Alyssa Reynolds, who's a licensed clinical social worker and scholars coordinator at the School of Social Work. Thanks for being here, both of you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I'm really excited that you're both here today because your work is so timely. If you've been following the news at all, if you watched the debates last night, you know that immigration is a major issue, and in particular, the uh, issue of family-child separation at the border. And Randy, when you first emailed me about the show, you said, this is something, what's happening at the border is something we would never allow in the United States. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, that... What's amazing about what's happening at the border, whatever your views about the politics or the policy or migrants or safety, what, what's amazing is that it's if no one considered when they started separating children from their parents or the people who brought them across the border, no one considered about what to do with these children or what's the best practice to do with these children. So there's a long history of federal legislation. There's something called the Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act. There's something called the Adoption and Safe Families Act. And even though Congress doesn't work well, this year they actually agreed on amendments to the Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act. So, so the the Congress knows about this legislation, but there's there's guidelines that people in the state of Idaho, our Child Protective Services, and in fact every state in the nation has to follow when the government deems that children are unsafe and brings them into custody. So what that suggests is that as a country, we really value the welfare of our children. Um, We value families and the integrity of families. And yet when we look at what's happening in these, use your term, detention centers, concentration camps, whatever you choose to call it, uh, that's not what's happening. So how do you, um, as a social work expert, make sense of that? Or what would you like to see happen there? Well, well, first, Jennifer, it doesn't doesn't make sense. Yeah. Uh, Clearly, you know, if we were working in the state of Idaho and we were called to a family that was having some kind of difficulty, the standard would always be what's in the best interest of the child. And so that's the place where the work really starts. What's in the best interest of the child coupled with safety? Is the child safe? And uh, the, the default is to keep families together because as as inadequate or as as um, as challenged as some families might be, it's still much better for children and f- to be with their parents or parent than it is to be in the state or in, obviously in this case in the federal government's custody. So when you think as social workers about keeping children safe, keeping children healthy, keeping families together, what is it what does it mean to keep them safe? I know there was some back and forth in federal courts last week about sort of minimum standards of care. Does it mean providing toothbrushes? Does it mean mm. providing blankets? Um, safe is something we take for granted, but what do you think about when you think about health and safety for these kids? 
I think that the safety does include um, blankets and toothpaste and toothbrushes. Um, we look at, um, I also think about safety in considering where the, um, trying to find the best place for the kids. Do they have somewhere else to go than the detention center? Are we looking at that? Um, do they have family that they can go with if they can't remain with their parents? Uh, first and foremost, I think that they should actually remain with their parents, and that would be the best practice. That's what would happen in Idaho um, if we um, deemed that there were no safety issues or concerns. And you're talking about foster care in particular, yes. and that's an area that you work in. Yes. So are you seeing parallels between what you study in the foster care system and your exposure to that system and what's happening in these centers? Yeah, in, in Idaho, we look at um, the if there's a safety concern that comes up with the children if they can't remain with their primary parent then um, immediately the state looks for alternatives of can the child be placed with a relative a fictive kin they don't even have to be a blood mm -hmm. kin they try to find somewhere for them to be placed there first in idaho like a grand parental figure or something like that yeah and yeah. it can be a family um, friend, and then they can do a very quick assess the, the um, safety um, of that placement and place them there. Okay. And Randy, you have a, a deep knowledge of sort of some of the requirements that different states have or that Idaho has in terms of best practices um, or that your field has. Can you talk a little bit about what those might be in terms of thinking through placements? Well, you know, to follow up on what Alyssa was talking about, you know, there are there's always going to be situations where the parents are so challenged, or there's their circumstances are so challenged that the that the state needs to step in and take custody uh, temporarily, not permanently, of of children. And the state works really hard. Every state works really hard at recruiting, retaining training foster parents they license foster parents so that they know that they're, they're that's a safe environment that they're putting children into so that would be the sort of the, the fallback if if when children have to be removed from their parents um, you know the, the other thing I'll say is I think we're I think what's happening now is putting the border patrol or if it's ice in a in a difficult situation these are law enforcement personnel who are not trained for this job and in every of the every of the 50 states we train child protection workers for this really difficult job so there's there's law enforcement people that are trying to do the job of somebody else and of, and of course it's not working well and in, in, in what are some of the ways in which you're most concerned about what's not working well in terms of what you're reading and hearing well, I wonder if um, that anyone's even thinking about looking into placing the kids with someone in an alternative placement or finding somebody else if they even know how. That's something that social workers are trained in. We know how to do that quickly. And I don't know if social workers are getting involved. Um, that's a, a trained group of people that can do that. Or if that system even exists, right? It seems like the, these decisions have been made, but then the then what has not been right. decided? That's what mm -hmm. I hear you saying. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. 
Right. It's just an area that we do problem solving in social work, and we can think of things outside the box that other people may not necessarily have thought of. We we use, like, um, think about it in um, an eco-map. An eco-map is looking at all the resources um, that are available to a um, child and, and their family, and then um, assessing that quickly and following up on it quickly. But if you don't have a sort of army of social workers involved in the situation with training like that, with resources like EcoMaps, it's hard to imagine what the next steps be if, if, if reunification is not possible, right, for political reasons, say. Uh, interesting. Well, when we come back from the break, I'd like to talk with you both about uh, the long-term effects to these children in particular and perhaps to their families of the child separation policies. Alyssa, I know that's an area of your research in particular. So please stay tuned. Um, You're listening to The Big Tent. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Kate LeBon, and you're listening to KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise. Welcome back to The Big Tent. I am your host, Jen Schneider, and I'm joined today by Randy Megan, who's the director and professor of the School of Social Work at Boise State, and Alyssa Reynolds, who's a licensed clinical social worker and scholars coordinator. I haven't heard what that is yet, so maybe we'll have time (laughs) to get to that uh, at the School of Social Work at Boise State. Thanks so much to you both for being here today. Before the break, we were talking about some of the things that social workers might expect um, when children and families are separated, say, in a foster care system, sort of that that's a a choice of last resort, and then how you best care for those children. And in the context of what's happening at the border, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts, Alyssa, about what you might expect to see in terms of maybe longer term effects from the trauma of this separation, which it sounds like is happening very abruptly and maybe without a lot of the wraparound care that social work might normally provide kids like this. Yeah, I have been wondering about what t- how the separation looks. So I have experience with kids being separated from their family um, here in Idaho going into foster care. And the way the separation occurs does impact what trauma looks like for a child. So if the separation is that the child knows, um, if the separation is that they get to say goodbye to their parent, um, I wonder if any of that is happening or, or if it is abrupt, then that can cause more trauma for the child. And I am guessing the the countries that the children are coming from that they have experienced other forms of trauma within their country and which is um, why they fled to begin right right. yeah right Uh and so that could exacerbate it being as in the separation and so um i think that we could prevent that by i mean my first choice would be don't separate from the caregiver that they're with that will alleviate trauma on that level everybody experiences trauma differently so we can't assume that each child is going to have the same experience but children as even if they're a baby experience trauma um, and they can feel it um, and it's a lifetime effect on the other side of that there's um, the children can have um, what gives me hope is that they're resilient 
everybody is resilient. And um, if we can bring this back around and have them reunite quickly with their family, come, you know, the separation occurs, could it be a quick separation and come back? Kids bounce back if they're with that primary caregiver. They bounce right back and they can recover from that trauma that's occurred. So quick reunification would be a good goal. And that's the key word, reunification. So in the state of Idaho, if Child Protective Services has to become involved, the goal is always reunification. And you want to do that as quickly as possible. And the child knows that and the parent knows that. So what's happening at the border? Is there even an effort towards reunification? From what I've read, they can't even track down some of the parents who have been separated from their children. They don't know where they are. So is reunification possible? In in Idaho and every other state, when children are removed, there's a regular court review. There's a regular court process. There's a plan for visitation. Are any of these children held in these, quote, shelters? Do, do they get any kind of visitation with parents? Um, so it's, uh, it, it's astounding that nobody's thought of this or that nobody's considered this. What your comments make me think of is how you manage uncertainty in the two cases. I imagine in the U.S. context, you would work with the child to sort of map out steps and what they might expect to see, perhaps. And in this context at the border, it doesn't sound like they're probably getting any of that kind of closure or promise of closure down the road. Yes, here in um, Idaho in the U.S., you do um, concurrent planning and you plan for reunification or not reunification. And not reunifying typically is means that you start putting together a permanent plan, which involves first and foremost family. Mm-hmm. So they know where they're they might end up. In other words, right, and the and the law talks about if if a child's in foster care, fifteen out of twenty two months. So there's there's even a time limit there, and who knows about what's going on with these children in federal custody? Is there a time limit? Are some of these children going to be in federal custody for years? I think um, what a sort of devil's advocate might ask you is, um, they might say these aren't our kids. Uh, they're not American citizens. Uh, we didn't ask for them to come. And so what is our responsibility to them? Do you, I know that's a, a politically loaded question, but uh, as professionals, how might you think about or address, approach that moral question? It comes, I think, about trying to be in their shoes. Um, why would a parent caregiver decide to take this risk and come to the border. I think it's life and death. And the journey itself is so risky. Mm. Yeah. And I was going to say that maybe the unifying principle here is safety. People want our borders to be safe. They want their families to be safe. They want to they want to be safe when they come in contact with with authorities, whether it's Mexican authorities or, or U.S. government authorities. And so let's figure out how to do this so that everybody is safe. Because right now, I don't know if anybody feels safe. And so that says to me it's not working at all. So, Alyssa, can you talk a little bit more about putting um, how you might guide people toward putting themselves in other people's shoes? What are the kinds of risks you imagine folks are fleeing that would prompt somebody to make this journey? 
Well, I um, understand that there's it, it's it's typically a lot of times life and death that um, parents are be- believe that their children may be killed and that they may be killed, and so they want to protect them. And I equate it to um, looking at something that we might experience in the United States is um, our kids having diabetes and then them um, needing insulin to live. I think these parents are in that kind of dire straits that they are willing to take whatever risk it is to save their children's life. Yeah, as a parent myself, I think exactly that. If my child needed drugs or needed a safe environment, we'd do anything to get them into that. Yeah, so that's the sort of mind frame we need to be in. I think so, to try to put ourselves in their shoes. What about you, Randy? Any thoughts on um, how we might encourage folks to think about this, maybe from a place of empathy or compassion? Well, you know, for me, uh, parenting is probably the hardest job in the world. Um, it all comes with a lot of rewards. Um, and I think most people are trying to do the right thing. They're trying to, and none of us have training in it. We, we learn as we go along. And uh, I don't think it's any different for a parent in Guatemala or Honduras or Mexico than it is for a parent in Texas or Idaho. Yeah, we, ha- we share that together mm-hmm. as parents, regardless of our nationality. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to talk with uh, with Randy and Alyssa about, let's say that you had a few minutes to sit down with a decision maker and advise them what you'd like to see them do to uh, make this situation better. So you have a little time to think about that. Those of you listening, uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back on The Big Tent. Hi, this is Rachel from Lake Street Dive, and you are listening to Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise. You're listening to The Big Tent here on Public Affairs Thursday, Radio Boise. My name is Jen Schneider. I'm your host, and I'm here with my guests, Randy Megan and Alyssa Reynolds from the School of Social Work at Boise State. We're talking about uh, family-child separations, both at the border and also in larger contexts like uh, foster care within the United States. One of the things we were discussing before we went to break was what we might like to see moving forward. What If you were to take a tour of these facilities or to have you know, an hour of time with an important decision maker, what are the things you would like to see in those facilities? What would you like to tell that decision maker about how they might improve what's happening there? Well, my first thing that, I mean, right away is keep the kids with their caregiver reunification then keep them together Mm -hmm. don't separate them from the Mm get-go I would like them not to be separated okay so stop separation stop Mm -hmm. and Alyssa earlier you mentioned that duration really matters you have a, a thoughts on how that could be shifted I mean, shorten the duration of time as quickly as possible. Look at the resources that are available. I think that if they have access to a social worker that um, can help them navigate the system, because it's a whole nother system to navigate um, human services, and we can do it, we understand it, and we can point them in the right direction, if that would be helpful. They really need trained adult allies. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Randy? I think there's there's always going to be some situations, situations happening at the border, where the the people who are 
intervening are unsure about whether it whether a child has a guardian or a parent with them whether it's unclear uh, or maybe they're unaccompanied and so there's always going to be situations where the government's going to have to gain temporary 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 custody of of children Um, and so in those cases you keep siblings together don't split up siblings find family homes trained licensed family homes where those children can go temporarily uh, because they're going to do the best in family-like settings rather than these large congregate congregate care settings um, the shelters the the you know i think about um when when the communist governments fell back in the 90s you know and there was romania and one of the things that had happened in romania for a long time was they put kids into these orphanages which thankfully you know the united states did away with many 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 years ago um and those kids had all kinds of difficulty failure to thrive was one of the big ones uh and just delayed developmental uh, milestones um and so we we know that there's a lot of pitfalls to congregate care what your comments are making me think is that so much of the media coverage, I think, of late of the centers has been dominated by the physical conditions there. So they're cold, the lights right. are left on all night, maybe they're not allowed to have soap or toothbrushes like we talked about. Um, older kids are left taking care of younger kids and so on. That's one dominant narrative. Another dominant narrative has to do with the dangers of crossing themselves. Mm-hmm. Of course, that horrible, iconic photograph of the uh, El Salvadorian ge- gentleman and his two-year-old mm-hmm. who, who drowned this week, dominating the news cycle. What I hear you saying is that we're not paying enough attention to that human piece that is so central to um, sort of well-being, right? The, mm-hmm. You can withstand a lot of physical mm-hmm. discomfort if you're with your parent mm-hmm. or if you have your child with you. So can you talk a little bit about how that manifests in your work, in your research, when you see, like, tell us a little bit more about why keeping families together is so important. Well, you know, one of the interesting things in my work as a social worker is you could be working with a child from a home that, that, you know, maybe personally I feel is inadequate or the parents are abusive or uh, have substance abuse problems. If you talk to those children, they love their parents. They they want to be with their parents, uh, as miserable as I might think that is. And so that parent-child bond is so essential and so fundamental to how we grow up that when you disrupt it, you're you're really um, I, I'm, I'm you're messing with people mm-hmm. is the best I can say. Mm-hmm. And research shows that um, this is based on kids in foster care um, in the U.S. is that they um, when the the first chance they get they return mm-hmm. back to their family. That's what the research research shows. So we always know that they're always going to return back no matter what that home life looked like and how abusive we thought it was. Um, that's where they'll go as soon as they can. Yeah, and it makes me think of your previous comment, Alyssa, about the trauma that they, many of them probably endured, whether it was from war or violence or uh, drug abuse or, you know, domestic violence in the home. Having gone through that with their caregiver or their parent, I would imagine that bond becomes even tighter mm-hmm. um, and make, making that separation even more traumatic. 
yeah, there's something called uh, post-traumatic growth, and they can um, build, become stronger from whatever from the trauma that's occurred, and put themselves together stronger than when they started. It's again, it also the research shows it's having that significant person in your life, and so they can carry that through if that person's not with them. But the sooner they can get back together with that person that um, supports them. Um, they will be able to um, recover more quickly and put themselves back together. Randy, you're um, calling us back to those Romanian orphanages, Mm -hmm. and I think probably a lot of us have the mental images of the children who sort of rock themselves, Mm -hmm. um, who are antisocial, to say the least, who have a variety of developmental social disabilities. I think there's a lot of fear that what's happening now in these facilities might lead to a generation of folks who have some of those maladaptive behaviors. I hear what you're saying, Alyssa. We can't say all of them will have those. But there's a sense in which we have a responsibility to sort of the future lives of these children as well. Yeah, that's that's well put. That. Um we have a moral responsibility uh, in terms of what's happening at the border. And people argue, well, there's not enough foster homes or there's not enough of this and that. From what I've read, what I've heard, there's lots of people that want to help. There's lots of people that want to do things, uh, whether it's faith-based or or even safety and security-minded. There's lots of people who are concerned about what's happening at the border and I think if the efforts were put into both the funding and thinking about caring for these children in a different way, we could move in that direction. If, you, if there was one thing you wanted people to think more carefully about, about this issue, uh, if you sort of were able to leave people with one message about these family child separations, what would it be? Boy, that's a hard question. One message. I think, I think it's down to the, to the the moral issue. We have a moral obligation to to take care of other people, to take care of children, especially. Um, and we know the governments aren't good at doing that. And so we have to, as individuals, as citizens, as moral human beings, care enough to do something to make those children's lives good enough. Yeah, but um, I know we focused a lot on kids, of mm-hmm. course, mm-hmm. in this um, today on the show. I think, too, about those parents and, again, how mm-hmm. gut-wrenching it would be to not know where your child was and if they were okay and to not be able to provide comfort. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So perhaps we have a moral obligation to them as well. Sure. Yeah. Oh, moral obligation to the families. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it is. And I'm back to the empathy. Um, I think that we all, if we could just envision what it's like to be in their shoes, be in those parents' shoes, um, be in those children's shoes, what it would be like for our kids to be in that detention center. What would we do as a parent? Um, How would we respond? Mm -hmm. Why would we make that choice as a parent for our kids? And go back to thinking about if your child was going, if you believe your child was going to be killed and die, what would you do? Think about that and to help you make the decision about how you would move forward. Yeah, I mean, what I really appreciated about our conversation today is that we've managed to not sort of get into the political rhetoric so much, although of course that shapes everything that's happening. Um, but it's just a reminder that these are human beings and we're human beings and we're connected by that. 
I think that's so important. So if folks wanted to find out more about your work, uh, you have websites at uh, boisestate.edu, I assume. Are there other ways in which they can follow you or contact you? Is that the best way? Certainly, um, the school social work website. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We have a Facebook page. So we're You're on active. Twitter. You're <laughs> a braver man than I, sir. Uh, yes, we're, we're active in social media, as this is being streamed in Facebook right now. Yeah, fantastic. Good. And same with you, Alyssa? Yeah, yeah. And I'm also, um, you mentioned that I'm the scholars coordinator, so I recruit and retain um, child welfare workers for the state. I have a stipend that I give back, give to people through the state of Idaho. Um, it's in partnership with the Department of Health and Welfare um, because we need social workers in the field. And this um, helps social workers pay for their education. So this is for folks who are interested in studying social work or who, who are already social workers? Both. Both, okay. That are interested in, and specifically, child welfare. Okay, so if you're passionate about these issues and you want to make a difference here in Boise and in Idaho, make sure to contact Alyssa and find out more about uh, the Scholars Program. Thanks to you both so much for coming on The Big Tent today. We really appreciate your insights and your expertise. Those of you uh, listening at home, thanks for tuning in. You can find us on at Big Tent Radio at Twitter. We occasionally post there, (laughs) I'll admit, I'll admit. And also uh, Big Tent Radio on Facebook. Join us there, and we'll see you next week.